Okay, we're going to do three character studies this evening. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this story before, but we're not going to kind of go through it verse by verse and just trace through the story. We're going to look at it through the eyes of the characters. So um, the book is called Ruth, but really many people have said you should call it Naomi because the story is mostly about Naomi. It begins with her and it ends with her too. If you flip over the page to the end of um, chapter four, you'll see if you just look through kind of the second half of chapter four, um, it ends with the women of the town who'd welcomed her back at the end of chapter one, praying a blessing over, not Ruth, but Naomi. And it ends with um, Naomi bouncing a little boy, a baby boy on her lap. It ends with the genealogy of this little boy. It ends with Naomi's joy and happiness. But it doesn't begin that way, does it? Oh, good. A little foretaste of what we're going to sing in a minute. It's a great song. Um, it doesn't begin like that, does it? It begins with Naomi's bitterness. That's what she tries to rename herself. Um, don't call me Naomi. That means, if you look down, if you've got a note there, it means pleasant or sweet. Call me bitter instead. She tries to change her name. So let's think about Naomi's character for, for the minute. What kind of thing would she be feeling, do you think, at the very beginning? Well, they start empty. She says later on, I went away full, but that's not strictly true, is it? I think that's probably her grief speaking. She goes away empty. Bethlehem, anybody know what Bethlehem means? It's a bit of an irony, isn't it? There's a famine, there's no bread in the house of bread. And so Ruth, sorry, not Ruth, Naomi and her husband, um, Elimelech, decide, they take a very difficult decision, probably a bit of a silly decision, possibly even a sinful decision, to leave the promised land where God has promised if they turn to him, then he'll provide for all their needs. They take the decision, instead of doing that, to leave the land and go somewhere else where they've heard that there's food. And so they go away with hopes in their hearts that they'll have some food in their stomachs. But eventually it turns to tragedies, doesn't it? They go away to survive, but what happens when they get to Moab? They don't survive, at least not for very long. Death comes to the house. At first it's Elimelech and Naomi loses her beloved husband. And then they marry off the two sons and it looks like things are going okay. You know, two sons, 10 years, but no children have arrived. And then the sons die, both of them, in quick succession. And you can feel, can you feel it? Naomi's life plunged into despair. You can read it in the way that the, whoever wrote this story down is a bit of a literary genius. Look at the way all the first few verses are all about names. Names, names, names. Difficult names to say. Malon, Kilion, mentioned a couple of different times. Elimelech, Naomi, Moab. All these different names come in. And then all of a sudden, in verse 5, the boys die and there's no names anymore. The woman was left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. Naomi has lost her identity. Do you see that? Death has ripped away who she used to be. She used to be full, full of husband, full of relationship, full of sons, full of pr the promise of their sons being married and soon grandchildren. And, and they would stay in Moab for a little bit and get some food. And then eventually, presumably, they would plan to return home. Or maybe not. Maybe they'd settled down there for a while and maybe that was a problem. But Naomi's hopes and future, her identity are all ripped away from her. 
when her husband dies, and so is she a wife anymore? Well, she's a widow. Her boys die, and so is she a mother anymore? Well, yes, sort of, but also it seems like her life has completely fallen apart, doesn't it? Um, death has taken away everything for Naomi. And that's what she says when she eventually comes back to Bethlehem. She hears that there's some food there. And so for survival's sake, presumably, they go back um, to Bethlehem and verse 15, um, sorry, not verse 15, um, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came there, the whole town was stirred because of them. She's back. She's here. The women, the women said, is this Naomi? And what does she say? Do not call me Naomi, call me bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Do you see, she started with hope, at least kind of hope, the hope of desperation, and she's finished with emptiness. That fullness, if you want to go and read it through this week, or maybe this evening, it won't take you very long, look out for the theme of fullness and emptiness. Um, empty bellies and full bellies in the kind of food sense and the pregnancy sense. You can look at all those kind of links um, later on. But Naomi started off with hopes of a full stomach, hopes of a full house, and ends up being empty in many different ways. So that's Naomi, at least the beginnings of her story. Let's think about the central character of the book, which is the Lord himself. And the central ca character of the book is God. So what does this teach us about God? What have we learned about him so far? Well, we've learned from Naomi's lips that he is in control. At least Naomi thinks that she's in control. I wonder what you think when you go through suffering or when you think about suffering, when colleagues at work or family friends or people that you love say, I couldn't believe in God because there's so much suffering in the world. Does that make sense to you? Do you resonate with those kind of ideas? But that's not where Naomi goes, is it? Naomi doesn't say, my life has fallen apart. There is no God in heaven. Naomi says, it's the Lord who's done it. Do you think she's right? It's a difficult question, isn't it? Because there are other places in the scriptures that teach us that the Lord has his hands on everything, that he really is sovereign over all. So when Joseph, you know the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, living in misery in a prison for years and years and years and years, but eventually it, it turns out all right. He becomes a prince in Egypt, hence the film, The Prince of Egypt. Um, and then his brothers return and they eventually recognize him. They're um, reconciled, he forgives them. They, they kind of ap apologize to him and he says to them, do you remember? He's immortal lines back in Genesis in the story of Joseph. You intended it for evil, but the Lord intended it for good. So Joseph seems to think, the writer of Genesis seems to think that even in the intentions of evil men, God is working. It's not just that he does some judo move to kind of turn good out of bad in the end. It's that he sees the end from the beginning and he plans it out, somehow even weaves in the dark threads of bitter providences, weaves in even the evil of people like us and intends it for good. What's the ultimate example for that? It's not the story of Joseph, it's the story of Jesus, another Joseph's son. Jesus came to earth and came to earth to die, didn't he? We were thinking about that this morning, at least briefly. That's, that's what Isaiah prophesied, that he would come, he'd be a suffering servant. 
that's what Jesus knew would happen from the very beginning. He knew that he would have to suffer. And he starts announcing to his disciples over and over again so that they understand it, that he's going to be a suffering servant. He knew it would happen from the beginning. So when he's crucified, it doesn't come as a surprise to Jesus. He says, my hour has come. Or before that, he says, my hour has not yet come. He's always looking to the cross. It's not as if Jesus had some other plan and then the Romans finally got him, you know, in league with the priests and so on. And they pinned him down, got him on the cross. And God said, oh, good gracious me, what are we going to do? We'll have to try and turn that for good. It wasn't a surprise to God that Jesus went to the cross. No, it was planned. People intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And so perhaps there's something like that going on here. Can you see that there always certainly is something like that going on here? That Naomi can only see the bitter part of it for the moment. But what God seems to have worked out, seems to have ordained for evil, as in for bitterness, for sadness, Death isn't a good thing, is it? He's actually weaving into good. You could think about it like this. Um, whenever you bake a cake, at least most cakes, you put in vanilla essence. Has anybody ever tried raw vanilla? I mean, from a vanilla pod, they're quite expensive, so I imagine we have, I, I've never done it, but apparently, if you scrape out some seeds from a vanilla pod, a raw one, and taste them, they don't taste very good. They're very, very bitter. Have you ever done that? Okay, yeah, vanilla essence, even that. Sometimes it's quite sweet, but it's bitter. But when you put it in a cake and mix it together with eggs and sugar and flour and butter and all those other things, a bit of strawberry jam and some cream, maybe some fresh strawberries in the summer, it tastes amazing. Well, put it into custard, it tastes brilliant. Put it into ice cream and you don't need anything apart from sugar, milk, cream and a bit of vanilla and freeze it and it tastes delicious. So what is Naomi doing in this story? In this chapter, Naomi's tasting straight vanilla and she's missed the fact that God is baking a cake with it. And if you taste it on its own, if all you say or feel at the moment is bitterness and the bitterness of suffering, then of course you'll say what Naomi says. The Lord has dealt bitter with me, bitterly with me, as if he's judged me, as if he's, his hand is against me. But she hasn't spotted, has she? She hasn't seen what we can see, that right next to her, is a daughter-in-law who loves her more than anything. Right next to her is the Lord carrying her home to Bethlehem to be the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the genealogy gets to, or it's in that direction at the end of the, of the book. You hear all the names. Salmon, father of Boaz. Boaz, father of Obed. Obed, father of Jesse. Jesse, father of David, as in the great King David. And we know who great, Kings David, great King David's greater son was, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ. So Naomi is the great, great, great grandmother of the Lord Jesus. So you just want to say to her at the end of this passage, don't you, at the end of this chapter, Naomi, if only you knew, if only you could see the cake that he's baking, if only you could just for a moment look up from that bitter vanilla that fills your mouth and see the tapestry, the beauty that God is weaving with your life. And perhaps we could say that to each one of us this evening. Perhaps that's what the Lord would say to you this evening. If only you could see what I'm doing with your life. If only you could see that it isn't just bitterness. If only you could see the other blessings I've given to you. If only you could see the end. Well, the Lord knows it. The Lord Jesus promises it. Uh, the Spirit is our down payment of it, that for us, soon it'll end. 
will maybe begin, but end for the minute, um, as happily as it did for Naomi. Um, she had to, well, she got to sit a little baby on her knee who would be hope for the future. And we see, Christmas time, not too long, a little baby born in a stable, and born in all kinds of bitterness and difficulty, who tasted bitterness through the whole of his life. But what was it like on the resurrection morning when the women saw him at the tomb, when Mary heard him say her name, when the disciples ate fish with him a few days later, when that pair on the roads to Emmaus got to have a burning heart Bible study with the living Lord Jesus and eat and break bread with him. There'll be a day when we get to see him face to face. Well, he'll look at you and he'll say your name and all the bitterness will be worth it. You'll look back and you see, oh, I get it now. That's what he was doing. And you'll resonate, you'll feel perhaps a little bit of what Naomi felt at the end of this story. But for now, she's feeling bitterness. For now, she can't see the promises of God. She can only taste the bitter providences of God. But is that all we can say about God? Kind of woven Naomi in with God? Well, first thing Naomi sees is his sovereignty, is how he's in control of everything. But she can't see his um, goodness, or at least she can't taste it for now. But it's interesting that it's from her voice that we hear lots of other stuff about God. So have a look at verse 6. Let's learn some more things about him, our central character. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from that country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You see who'd done it? The Lord was the one who'd done it. Even though there were people who had turned against him, he'd been generous and kind and come and given food to them. And she carries on and says more about this generous and kind God in verse 8 and 9. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. So she knows God is capable of kindness. And she's praying that, asking that, blessing them, um, praying for God's kindness over them. And then she carries on in verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. So do you see, she knows somewhere deep in her heart that God is a God of provision that God is a God of kindness, that God is a God who brings rest. And even if it isn't for her at that moment, she knows that he can do that. And so he, she asks for that for her daughters. Have a look at, um, at verse 18 as well. And, um, sorry, it's verse 16. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will, will lodge. Your people shall be my God, and your God will be my God. You see, as we were talking about this morning, he's a personal God. Ruth talks about him not just being I don't know, the God or the Almighty or something like that, but my God, your God. So this kind God who gives rest, who provides for people who don't deserve it, is a God that we can know personally. And then verse 20 and 21, we've seen this already. He's the sovereign God. Naomi is right, isn't she, when she says, it's the Lord who's done this. It's from his hand that this bitterness has come. He is really in control. But that's not all there is to his character, is it? We started with that. He's sovereign. He's the one who's in control, even over sadness. But he's also the one who's good, who's kind, who provides for people who don't deserve it. That's who our God truly is. And so we can see that the one who's baking this cake, the one who's bringing slowly, bringing together all these different ingredients to make something really beautiful. And I think the biggest of those ingredients is Ruth. She's our third and final character, for the moment anyway. 
major character. What is Ruth like? Well, Ruth is a pagan. Ruth is somebody from a faraway country whose people do not believe in God. You can go and look up some of the stories of the Moabites, if you like. Um, see if I've got a reference. Uh, Numbers 25 or Judges 3, if you want to know something about the history of Moabites. They were not particularly um, virtuous people. And she's one of them. These people who want nothing to do with God ends up getting married off to an Israelite and something changes. In these 10 years that she's with Naomi under her roof, something in Ruth's heart changes. Did you see? So she's a pagan Moabite, who knows who, worshipping idols, all that kind of stuff. Not much hope for her. Far away, literally, physically far away from Israel. But all of a sudden, well, maybe it wasn't all of a sudden, maybe it took a while, over 10 years, her life is turned upside down and she becomes the most beautiful and faithful of characters. I mean, just look at the kind of things that she says. When Naomi says, turn back, my daughters, it's going to be better for you. Orpah says, no, 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 not, no, we're not going to go to begin with. And then Naomi says, no, honestly, think it through, think logically, be sensible. I'm not going to have boys now. There's no hope for you. You'll just be widows if you come with me. You're young women still, so go back home. And Orpah takes the sensible choice, doesn't she? She thinks it through and does the sensible thing the rational thing. But what does Ruth do? Ruth has come to know a God who is not particularly rational. Maybe that sounds strange, you can think about it as we go, but a God who always seems to be doing the most crazy upside down things, like sending his son to be born in a stable to a virgin girl in a backwater town, in a backwater country, to then eventually die on a cross after everybody, pretty much everybody, had rejected him through his whole life. And for that to be the hope of the world is a pretty upside down strange thing, isn't it? But God seems to be the God who takes little people and uses them to shame strong and powerful, self-important, proud people. That's what he does here. Ruth, from far away, east of Eden, becomes the most wonderful, wonderfully committed daughter-in-law and worshipper of the living God. I wonder if you've noticed the word that has come up about 12 times through this. Um, it's not always translated the same word, in English, which makes it tricky, but it's enough, in there enough for us to spot the word return. Did you see that as we were going through? And that's why we started in 1 Peter 2, where we read, we've returned. We were like sheep going astray, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This is a story all about return. Naomi tries to return to Bethlehem. The girls try to go with her. She says, no, don't return to your homeland. And Ruth says, no, 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 I'm not going to return there. I'm going to return with you to your homeland. And it's all over, everything that she says. In fact, the narrator tells us right at the end something really interesting about Ruth. Did you spot this in verse 22? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So it's not just, do you see that? It's not just Naomi who's returned, as in come back where she came from, but Ruth has returned but she's never been in Israel before. Bethlehem's not her home. She's always lived in Moab, and Naomi's, since she's known her, has always lived with her in Moab, and now she returns to a place she's never been. Did you see that? It's a strange one, isn't it? So what, in what sense has she returned? Well, she has returned to the shepherd and overseer of her souls. Do you see that? That she was east of Eden, like all of us, like all of humanity, who've been far away from God since Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, for good reason, far away, away from God in the east. 
soon to return, soon to return back to the garden in the west. And that's what she's done. She's been an idol-worshipping Moabitess, far away from the God who made her. And now she returns to the one who's the shepherd and overseer of her souls. I haven't just made that up. It's not just a slip of the writer's pen. It's exactly what she says, isn't it? In verse 15 and 16 in her promises, she says um, in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Naomi's just told Orpah and Ruth to go back to their gods. And Ruth, as if to underline that, did you see that? Um, where was that? Uh, it's one of the verses previously, it struck me in the reading again. She says, go back um, to your people and to your gods. And Ruth, as if to say, definitely not, to underline it, she says, no, I'm going with you, but not only with you, I'm going to your God, and he'll be my God. Not just yours anymore and me kind of hanging on as an outsider, he'll be mine, and I'll be his. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? You see what she's done? She has stood at the altar with her maker and said, all that I have, I give to you, and all that I am, I share with you. It's not much, honestly, it's just my sins and idolatry, but then he said to her, and you can see it all the way through these stories. He said to her, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. She's written into the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. You can look that up, I think it's in Matthew. Ruth returns to the shepherd and overseer of her souls, the God that she never knew, but the God who made her. She comes back to him. Do you see how much commitment she has? And do you see how her returning to God makes her cling to and be such a good friend and lover of people. Um, think of her promise. Have a look at this. Read that again. Don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my God and your God, my God. The verse before in, in verse 14, where, is, where it says, they wept again, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. That word clung is a covenantal word. Similar to if you think back to Genesis, where it describes that father, uh, 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 a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two or cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This covenantal word. And then she makes a covenantal promise where she says in some, um, in some verses, um, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. Or here we read, may the Lord do so to me in verse 17. And even more also, if anything but death parts us. She's making a marriage vow, isn't she? But not to a man, she's making it to her mother-in-law. She's the opposite of the mother-in-law joke, isn't she? Um, she loves her mother-in-law. In fact, the only time love is mentioned in the whole of the book, any guesses? It's not between Ruth and Boaz. If you know the story, kind of famous love story, Ruth and Boaz, and they meet in the night and their eyes meet and all that. It's not really a love story about them. The only time that love comes up is at the end, chapter four. The women of the town say to, to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons, have given birth to him. That's the only time the word love comes up, and it's all about Ruth's love for Naomi. Do you see? There's so many things we could see, but do you see that her love for God, whatever had changed, whatever in Naomi's quiet faith, in the midst of her grief, 
of ten, over 10 years, something had witnessed to Ruth's heart, such that Ruth said, this God is going to be mine. And she had come to love the God of Israel so much that it poured out in love for her mother-in-law. So if Orpah, Orpah takes the sensible route out, Ruth follows the promises. And that's always the pattern as it should be in scripture. There's the rational way. There's the way that seems to make most sense, which usually is called something like the broad road. That kind of is common sense to everybody. The common sense to go back home and live a life in Moab. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to live as a widow. In fact, I will pledge myself to this mother-in-law who can give me and promise me nothing. I'll tie myself to her even beyond death. It's even stronger than a marriage vow. She makes to her hopeless mother-in-law who can give her nothing, pledges herself to her in covenantal love. And what does God do with that? Hopeless love that's based on nothing but a promise, a promise of his goodness. Well, he brings life and beauty and generations and generations of blessing for not just Ruth and Naomi, not just Jesse and David and those beautiful stories in the Old Testament, not even just Jesus and his disciples, but for a world full of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who get to be a part of his promises. Do you see why the story of Ruth is, or Naomi is just so beautiful? It's got so much in it. We've got Naomi, bitter, but trusting in God, knowing that he's the one who's still in control. All she can taste is the vanilla. If she could only see, if she could only see the blessings God has already wrapped around her, then she would know for herself, not just in her mind, but like we were talking about this morning, she would know that God is not only in control, but he uses all that sovereign power in the end to work kindness and goodness and rest and peace and joy for all of those who, who throw common sense to the wind and say, I'm with you. I'll trust your promises and nothing else.